Good morning. If you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we are in chapter 9, and we'll be looking at verses 14 through 29 together. And friends, as you are turning there, let's stand together and rejoice and to give thanks that God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word has been easily placed in our sinful hands today. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. But they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Well, friends, this is God's word. It's without error in any part. It's for his glory and for our good. You may be seated. Before we look at God's word together, please pray with me now and ask for the teaching and the receiving of his holy word. Let's pray together. Father, what a wonderful story and historical record of your mercy that you have given us this morning. Open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds that we may leave this place edified and fulfilled and encouraged. We pray all these things in your most holy, majestic, and Trinitarian name. Amen. Well, good morning, friends. Once again, today I have been given the wonderful privilege to preach before you again. The first time was back in September. In case I haven't met you yet, my name is Seth Dews. I know in the bulletin it looks like does, but it's, it's dues, like you pay your dues. I was a pastor or am a pastor within the PCA and the newish chaplain at Randolph Air Force Base. My family and I moved here from Natchez back in March after being a solo pastor there for six years, as well as being in the Louisiana Air National Guard. Thank you for your hospitality. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, Derek, for the opportunity to preach and to study God's word together. I also have many members of my family here today, several fellow Texans and also some Mississippi 
doozes or, or doos I. Don't, I don't know the plural of, of doos there, but thank you all for being here today too. When Derek asked me to preach this morning, he asked me to cover something dealing with the topic of thankfulness. And because, you know, it's hard to believe that Thanksgiving is already this week and 2021 is almost gone. And so what in the world can we talk about to be thankful? And this is one of my favorite passages in the Gospel of Mark. And right away, I want us to be extremely thankful that God has given us this story in, our, in his word, in our time together today, that in this account, we can see how our God and King truly is the Messiah, how he really is here for his people, that we can rejoice and give thanks for all the things that he has done and continues to do for us. Now, when we get to chapter 9, if you still have your Bibles open, at this point, it has been a week since Jesus famously rebuked the apostles and Peter in Mark chapter 8 by saying, get behind me, Satan. And if you have to kind of think about that story, we have to remember that they are on a 120-mile trip from Galilee to Jerusalem where Jesus would die for his people. And so all along the way, on, on the road to Jerusalem, there have been many kind of ups and downs with the apostles and the disciples. They have seen a lot of things. They have heard a lot of things that they haven't been expecting. And when we get to Mark chapter 9, as we study this portion of Mark chapter 9, I want you to just kind of look at chapter 8, 9, and 10. And in those three chapters, the main two topics that Jesus addresses is faith and sight and how they correlate with each other, how they're connected. Often in our Christian walk, though, we rely more on sight than we do faith. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Romans 8, verses 24 and 25. Faith is the backbone of the Christian life. And yes, it is a struggle. Now, faith is more than a simple recognition of being a Christian or, or participating in the church for an hour or two or a week. Faith is a lifestyle and a commitment. And there are two things that I would like us to see this morning. Let's talk about the first Large amounts of faithlessness. Large amounts of faithlessness in verses 14 through 19. So go back to verse 14, right away in verse 14, as Anglican pastor J.C. Ryle says here, he says, we come down from the vision of glory to a conflict with satanic possession. Like Moses, when he came down from Mount Sinai, he finds his little flock in confusion. So it takes Jesus... And the inner apostles, Peter, James, and John, it takes them a day to get back down from the mountain of transfiguration. And as they are coming down, we see that we have a problem in verse 14. In fact, our, our, our section, our passage this morning, it introduces a lot of characters. We have Jesus, we have the 12, we have a great crowd, as it says, the scribes, and then a father, and then a demon-possessed boy. And no one is really on the same page. If you look in verse 15, the crowd realizes that Jesus has returned, and so they quickly rush to see him. But Jesus isn't too concerned about the great crowd. What is he concerned about? He's focusing on what takes place with the nine apostles that are in this big argument with the scribes. Look in verse 16, Jesus, he asked them, it's almost like he said, hey, hey, guys, what, what, what's going on down here? What are you arguing about? And look at verses 17 and 18. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I, I brought my son to you, 
for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So three things that I want us to see from these verses, three things. The first is we don't know who this man is. In the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's, he's never named. We don't really know how old he is. We don't know his background. We don't know his occupation. We don't know if he had already been a disciple of Jesus or if he just started following Jesus in this moment. But what's interesting about this man's faith, as small as it might be, is he knows that Jesus is the only cure. In Matthew's account, it says this man kneels before the Lord. And notice how his son's condition, it's not one of a medical nature, it's not a medical problem, it is a spiritual problem. It is a result of demons only to twist and to distort the image of God. But the second thing that I want us to notice is notice how early we are liable to be injured by Satan. Notice how early we are liable to be injured by Satan. The synoptic gospels, they never tell us how old this child is. They never tell us really how long he's been suffering in, in the sense of like calendar days or years. It just says since he's been very young. And in Luke's account, the man mentions that this is his only child. But Jesus has compassion on him. Look in verse 21 again. He says, how long has this been happening to him? We even discover in verse 22 that the demon is causing this boy to jump into fires. He's causing him to jump into water and to almost drown himself. He's also mute because of this demon. He can't cry out and ask for help. But can you imagine the lack of sleep this father must have. You know, there, there are just some passages in the Bible that we can never fully understand unless we have been blessed with the gift of being a parent. And the longer I've been a father, the more people have told me, you hate to see your kids suffer. You know, if you are a parent or a grandparent this morning, can we imagine a child, your only child, going through something like this. Friends, I, I, don't, I don't want to imagine that. What would that do to us emotionally, physically? Now, if my child was going through something like that and there was nothing I could do, I've tried everything, I've tried every remedy, I've tried every cure, I've tried everything that I could possibly think of, and this is still happening every day, what would that do to my faith? And you see, Satan, we see his true colors here, don't we? Satan doesn't care if your child is a month old or 40 years old. He will stoop lower than anyone to lure them away from the kingdom of God. And it's our duty in response, friends, as believers and as parents and grandparents and guardians of children to train them up in the way that they should go so that they do not depart from it, as Proverbs 22 tells us, so that we can do everything we can to point them to the cross, but not only to the cross, but point them to the resurrection, the ascension, and Jesus' one-day return. 
you know, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, whatever title you might be, we struggle with this today. We struggle with teaching our children. And often it's, it's a terrifying thing to see. Of all the churches that I served where I was doing youth ministry, at every church that I served at, it, it got worse and worse and worse with the lack of biblical knowledge, the biblical understanding in the students that I shepherded. And one of the most haunting places I saw it was when I was in Mississippi, I, I taught Bible at a local community college and, and the lack of, of biblical knowledge, the, the absence of Jesus was the biggest threat, the biggest obstacle that I had to deal with as a teacher of the Bible. Whether we're a parent, a teacher, whether we're the world's greatest scientist, whatever we are, we're called to teach everyone about Christ. Why? Because the Bible commands us to. Why? Because we love each other. We are a community. We are a family of God. Scripture commands us to teach our children every moment we have about the love of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. These words I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, the frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's from Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 9. And this is requiring more of us than just buying one of those signs at, at Hobby Lobby that says blessed and, and hanging it up on the wall. It, it requires more. It requires us to talk about Jesus. You know, witnessing for Christ rarely comes at convenient times. Witnessing for Christ rarely comes at convenient times that fits into our schedule. My, my wife and I were on a mission trip to Haiti back in, in 2013, and, and one morning our job was to ride on a bus up this tiny village road. It was, it was terrifying. It was one of those don't look out the window because we might fall off the side of this road. And our job was when we got to this little kind of country village up in the mountains, we were to host a vacation Bible school for the community. And there was a Haitian local whose name was Junior. And as soon as Junior sat on the bus, I could feel his eyeballs just kind of burning into the side of my head. And he was staring at me. It was early in the morning. I'm still kind of wiping the sleep away from my eyes. And I finally just kind of looked at him and said, what? <laughs> and he said, Let, let's talk about Jesus. And he had his Bible open. I mean, he was like a little hyper puppy, just ready to go. And I remember in my, in my kind of sinful nature, I'm thinking, you know, what do, what do you want to know, man? Like, I, <laughs> we've only been up for 30 minutes. I mean, I, I'm still kind of getting my coffee and donuts in my system. Why, do we really have to do this now? And he said, yes, we do. You have nowhere to run. We're on the same bus together. We have about an hour to go before we get up to the mountains. And that entire bus ride, I was blessed to, to teach him about Christ. But in my sinful nature, I, I didn't want to. You see, Satan doesn't want any more followers of Christ. He will stoop lower and quicker than anyone else to simply bring them suffering. That's exactly what he's done for this boy. 
for his father. But the third thing that I want you to notice about verses 17 and 18 is notice the faithlessness of the apostles. Notice the faithlessness of the apostles. We have to ask the question, when and where did they start losing their faith? Because if you still have your Bibles open, I want you to flip back to Mark chapter 6. Go to Mark chapter 6, and I want you to look at verses 7 and 13. In verses 7 and 13, Jesus gives his apostles the ability to cast out demons. They can work on his behalf. And they've been doing this. But now, all of a sudden, they're not able to. And we learn at the end of our passage this morning that it's because they're not praying. They're not praying for each other. They're not praying for the gifts that they have been given. And you can almost kind of imagine that they're, they're embarrassed. And the scribes, the, the religious leaders, they're sitting there going, hey, hey, you're, you're supposed to be able to do this. What's your problem? Why haven't you been able to cast this demon out? And look in verse 19, Jesus, he echoes the words from, from Moses, from Deuteronomy 32 and Isaiah, Jeremiah, also Psalm 13 and Psalm 95. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? Now, Jesus says this phrase five times in the Gospel of Mark, and it's, it's never a good thing. But the good news is look at the end of verse 19. He says, bring him to me. Jesus doesn't mock them. He doesn't ridicule them. Jesus doesn't shake his head and say, I, I can't believe you guys. You guys are worthless. Instead, he says, bring him to me. So the second thing that we see this morning is let's talk about small amounts of faithfulness. Small amounts of faithfulness in verses 20 through 32. Satan has taken this boy to the lowest common denominator. And now for the rest of the story, we see Jesus' diagnosis on not only the boy, but his father as well. And look at, look at as they're bringing the boy, look at verse 20. It says, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground. He rolled about foaming at the mouth. I think this happens for one of two reasons, if not both. The first is that the demon is deathly afraid of who he's seeing because he knows that he's no match for Christ. But the second is that he's getting one last opportunity of pain and turmoil in this boy before he's banished. One last small flicker of misery showing Jesus what he's been causing this boy to experience. But then look, the father informs Jesus how long this has been taking place. If you look at the end of verse 22, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It's very interesting wording here. Because notice how he knows that Jesus can do something. He acknowledges that. He, he is the one who, who did seek him out. But he's also acting as if this problem is too great for Jesus. Now, how often do we do that in our prayer lives where we, we come before the throne of grace, we come before Christ and we say, Lord, if you could maybe just do this, if this maybe fits your schedule, could you hear me out just for a few minutes? We're called to not come to the Lord in a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of, of boldness, knowing that he 
hears our prayers. As Psalm chapter 8 says, that he is mindful of us. You see, this man, he, he doesn't fully believe that Jesus can completely eradicate the issue. He wants the problem to be resolved, but he isn't sure if his faith can fix it. He isn't sure if Jesus can really fix it as he claims. And you know, we're, we're a lot more like this man than we care to admit. In, in this moment, he's struggling with both unbelief and disbelief. Unbelief and disbelief. So what's the difference? Disbelief is an unwillingness, an unpreparedness, a stubbornness, a resistance to change, a resistance to believe. Disbelief is when you, you know the truth, but you don't want to accept it. Un unbelief is where you could be completely unaware of the truth, but you are open to being taught the truth. You're open to helping yourself believe. And often in our sinful natures, we, we convince ourselves that our problems are too great, they're too burdensome, they're too heavy for Jesus. And it's extremely foolish for us to think this way. But I want you to look in verses 23 and 24 again. Notice what happens. And I would love to have known the kind of inflection and, and the tone of Jesus's voice. I think that would help us in our modern interpretations today, but unfortunately we don't have an audio recording of verses 23 and 24. But notice what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, if you can. I, I don't, I don't, to me, I don't, I don't think that Jesus is offended here. Like, seriously? Seriously, dude? <laughs> if you can? I think it's more of, if you can. He's kind of putting it back on him. If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And we should admire and applaud this man's words because there's no can't with Jesus. Because look at what he tells him. He says, all things are possible for the one who believes. You know, Matthew and Luke, they also mention Jesus saying here that you have to have faith like a mustard seed, which is something Mark kind of oddly leaves out. You know, Mark is always in a hurry as he's writing. He's always saying immediately. He says immediately over 40 times in his gospel. But Mark, he leaves this out. Having faith like a mustard seed. The father here in this moment, he's seeking an immediate fix. But what is Jesus trying to tell him? Jesus is saying, before I give you the cure, your faith has to grow too. You can't just seek out the miracle, but you have to seek out the provider of the miracle. Doubt is not the goal for this man. Doubt is not the goal for us in the Christian life. The Bible treats doubt very seriously, and it reveals that it's an issue for all of us. But how can you and I get better at handling doubt? We do so with gentleness and patience and respect, and have mercy on those who doubt, Jude 22. Have mercy on those who doubt. You see, the Father's faith, even though it's small, it's real. Even though it's small, it's real. And he's saying in this very small phrase, 
If you can't help my boy, Jesus, if you can't help them, then at least help my faith so maybe I can help him. See, small faith leads to unbreakable faith. And look in verse 25. Jesus, he commands the spirit to come out and to never enter him again. It's beautiful, beautiful words. Underline that. It's that important. Never enter him again. And notice how Jesus simply speaks. He, do, he doesn't have this kind of little med bag with a, with a red cross and he's not pulling out potions and lotions and herbs and spices and oh man, this is gonna take a while. You know, we're gonna, we're gonna be here for a couple days. I don't, I don't know if I can handle this right now. He simply speaks. And do we believe that God can heal us by simply speaking? Do we believe that God can do anything by simply speaking? We read in Genesis 1 that he spoke the world into existence. But of course, the demon, what's he going to do? He's going to put on this show. He makes it difficult for the boy by crying out and convulsing him. The event is so violent. Look in verses 26 and 27. It says that most of them that witness this, they think that he's dead. They think that he is a corpse. It says his body looks like a corpse at the end of verse 26. Now you can imagine people staring. Their jaws are open, their mouths are open, their eyes are this big. Some people are probably running, going, I'm getting out of here. I don't know what's happening. And yet again, when it seems like all hope is lost, I love verse 27. Look at verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. You know, I don't, I don't think any Bible movie or, or a show could ever capture the emotions of the Father in this moment, knowing that Jesus had cured him, knowing that it was over. Now, we don't really know what this exchange is like because the, the story kind of suddenly ends in verses 28 and 29 Everybody's gone. Jesus and the apostles are in this house that they don't know who it belongs to. And then the apostles are asking him, hey, what was that about? And Jesus says in verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So friends, what do we, what do we learn from this story this morning? How can this passage be about Thanksgiving? Why care? What does it do for us? Well, I think there are five quick things that it does for us this morning. The first is, Let's be thankful that God has given us this story. Let's be thankful that God has given us this story. We can rejoice today, friends, that God's word has been easily placed in our hands or on our phones, I guess. I'm more of a pages, tangible pages guy. But what a wonderful blessing this is to have this story that we easily miss, that we easily overlook. The second thing is let's be thankful that Jesus is the only cure. Let's be thankful that Jesus is the only cure. There, there are so many emotions and so many other things that we could focus on in this passage. We could talk about frustration and disappointment, spiritual and physical torture and anxiety. But who cures all of this by simply speaking? Jesus, the great physician, the resurrection and the life. It's not the crowds, it's not the apostles, it's not the scribes, it's not anybody standing by, it's Jesus. 
The third thing that we can be thankful for is let's be thankful that the evil one, Satan, continues to be defeated. Satan is not an equal adversary to Christ. Satan is a created being like us. Jesus is God. And Satan is no match for Jesus or his followers. We learn from 1 John 4, verse 4, that little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Satan is afraid of Christ as we saw this demon respond when he saw him. And if we are followers, if we are true believers this morning, we know that our children cannot be demon-possessed because it says the Holy Spirit is in us and he is greater than the spirit of the world. But Satan will do everything he can to make us doubt that. But in the end, Christ will have the final victory. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, Romans 16, verse 20. We know that Satan is already like a dog on a, a long leash, as it says in Revelation 20, and he will be defeated. But we must be vigilant to stand fast against him and to never let him take control. The fourth thing that we can be thankful about this morning is let's be thankful that deep within our hearts we can believe. Let's be thankful that we can believe. Do we truly believe in Christ, that he is our savior? You know, friends, it is a, it's a fascinating thing just to have the willpower and the discipline to open our Bibles at least once or twice a week and to read God's word. That is, that is a blessing to actually have the willpower through our sanctification to do that. But do we truly believe? Because faith is a gift. It did not originate on our own. It did not come from us, as Ephesians 2 says. Listen to this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, but a gift from God. Ephesians 2, verse 8. You see, the Father's words in Mark chapter 9, they, they aren't a contradiction, but they are an accurate depiction and a summation, the status of our spiritual journey. And through this miracle... We can have faith as well. That even on our best days, friends, even on our best days, our faith could be a whole lot better. But what does Jesus say? Have faith of a mustard seed, just a little. And that counts. Jesus doesn't say have the faith of two mustard seeds or some watermelon seeds, pumpkin seeds, a mustard seed, and just one. But the fifth and the final thing that we can be thankful for is let's be thankful, friends, that Jesus today causes us to stand. It causes us to stand. I want you to go back to verse 27. I think this is one of the best verses in the passage, verse 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Wow. How often is Jesus making us stand? How often are we acknowledging that? That Jesus, by his grace and his mercy, he allowed me to stand up and get out of bed this morning. He is allowing me to stand before you right now and, and to study God's word together. He 
He's allowing all of us, hopefully, to stand after the service and to go about and do all the things that we have to do this week. That may not be the case tomorrow. You realize that, that, that none of us have the right or the privilege to be here in a few hours. Don't worry, that's not like a hit order or anything I'm saying. But what does James chapter 4 say? James chapter 4 says, our, our life is like a mist. We might not even be here tomorrow. You might not even be here tonight. And you see, the apostles, they, they had forgotten this. They, they had forgotten that we have to rely on Christ for everything. They were trying to rely on themselves. They were self-deceived. You know, we often like trusting in ourselves more than we do our God. And what did Jesus say? Bring the boy to me. What should we say this morning? Jesus, let us bring our burdens, our anxieties, let's bring it all to you. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I want you to listen to these words from hymn writer Isaac Watts. He was born in 1674. He was the author of over 750 hymns. He says, how sad our state by nature is, our sin, how deep it stains. And Satan binds our captive minds fast in his slavish chains. But there's a voice of sovereign grace, sounds from the sacred word. O ye despairing, despairing sinners come and trust upon the Lord. Friends, we believe, help our unbelief. Let's pray together. Our dearest Yahweh and King, we are just like the apostles in this passage. We are right here in, in the company of Christ, and often we still don't get it. And we still try to claim to be Christians by ourselves, but we can't do it alone. And so, Lord, help us to remove the doubt and the skepticism, the, the complacency, the half-heartedness. Remove the idols and the distractions, the diversions, and instead help us to bring everything to you. And all of our burdens and anxieties that we in return may be thankful that you cause us to stand and to live another day for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.